0: Today our reading is taken from Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.
1: Good morning. Welcome. I haven't quite got the Peter Crook richness of voice. Peter, we honour you for your dulcet tones, but I have got a cold, so um, I need a little bit of help from the uh, sound guys. But they're going to help me. I want to talk to you about a few books before we get going in the look of uh, Book of Hebrews. Um, One is a freebie, one is one that I'd love you to buy. But here's a freebie. There's about ten of these that I found in my bookcase uh, from last year, from last Christmas. These are for you. If you're a Christian, Um, you would find these of great help as you look at them devotionally through the period of Advent as we walk towards Christmas. There by a superb gentleman called Tim Chester who opens up the Bible very, very helpfully. If you would like one, please take one for nothing if you're going to read it. If you want to pay for it, please put a couple of quid in to the uh, box saying offering. If you're not yet a Christian, can I encourage you to take one as well? Um, if you're interested in what the Christian message is all about, what better time there is than uh, Easter and, and then also Christmas to look at the claims of Christianity? This book would help you to do that. There's another small white book next to it written by another superb gentleman called Rico Tice. Um, Please take one of those. Uh, Again, take it. Don't pay anything. Just take it and promise me, please, that you'll read it. But why not take one of those? I'd love for that table to be clear, not least for the sake of my own bookcase. Um, Andrew, come and join me. It's not that uh, often that you recognise an author is in your midst. And so we have one. Here's Andrew that's going to come to life now. Um, Andrew very kindly gave this to me
2: for free.'ll pay you later um, <laughs> you 've been busy. Mm-hmm. what have you been busy doing that wasn 't the first question you were going to ask me yeah some of you may be uh, may be aware that I do a fair bit of writing in my line of work and in my personal life, uh, both for organizations and i 've written a couple of books beforehand, but this one um, Came about a couple of years ago, and um, so I I was prompted to write about Christmas. Uh, And the main reason for it was might seem a bit pedantic, but I was fed up with the innkeeper. I don't don't know how many of you've been to nativity plays, and and I thought, what on earth is that guy doing there? So that prompted me into what what other misconceptions do we have about e- about Easter, about <laughs> Christmas? That's your next book. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we we'll come on to that later. <laughs> 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 um, so that's and I thought, what do we really know about what went on at the Chris- at Christmas about that first Nativity narrative? So I drew together various bits of research that's been going on, and produce the said book.
1: Now, I was going to ask you, So uh, the question I hit you up with first of all was why write yet another book on okay. Christmas? That's the answer. Uh, can you describe the book? If you were going to try and sell it, um, looking at misconceptions, but how is
2: this book different from other books? Okay. Uh, the book is different, first of all, because it's um, recommended by JT. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, it's always a good plus. Um, but it's... It's looking at Christmas in uh, a totally different way that other books approach it. A lot of books approach it just from the straight Christmas uh, narrative, telling what happened uh, from when the angel appeared to Mary onwards. But this one goes into more depth of what actually um, was happening there, what was the historical background, who were the people involved? Who was Augastus? Who was Herod? Um, what, what was going on at the time? Uh, what was the background? Some of it you will it's familiar because you come from good Bible believing churches and this one in particular. But some of it you may go, well, I never knew that. <laughs> um, and John once said to me, he said, a lot of Preachers will be buying this book because they say there's stuff in there that you know they get a bit stale about Christmas time. So it's fresh stuff, and also I don't like books where you just read through a chapter and go, oh that's nice. Um, I finished that. Uh, at the end of every single chapter, there are questions for you to consider. And hopefully that will start a thought process in your own mind Mm. about what have I read and how does it actually apply to my life.
1: Uh, How long does it, this is not a joke, um, how long does it take to put in, uh, the the amount of scholarships in this book is striking, Um, how long did it take you as a project? Mm. (laughs) <laughs> that's Deborah, Andrew's wife. <laughs> Perhaps I'm asking the wrong person. <laughs>
2: yeah. That's That's difficult because it, right now and I've got folders at home about future projects. How many feet? <laughs> a whole box. Um, and um, so it uh, literally takes years and years of thought process. And every mm. now and again, i was say, oh, that's a good point. I'll write it down, put it in the box, and it will go away. Um, so that's that's how it generally goes. Uh, this one took uh, about uh, five years in the making, about six months of writing it roughly right. um, and the editorial ship and that took about three months um, so I've had brilliant support from day one um, who have helped in that regard.
1: So lots of reference I said to um, Andrew, thank you for not putting all the footnotes um, if you'd done that, it would be twice as thick I don 't say that to compliment him um, unduly. There is a ton of scholarship in this that uh, I commend to you. It does try and do two things which is a, you could use it as a reference guide you know I've always wanted to know um, Herod Antipas was the one that stuck out for me it's helpful. Um, what about Herod the great what's the difference between him? Are oh, they of the same family line? So you could look up page 49 and you could just jump in for one of many items that are looked at, but that is to undersell it, if you only understand it as a reference guide, because it's not, it's more than that. There's reference, also Andrew seeks to make it devotional as well. Last question to you, sir. Um, Huge project, five years in the making, six months in the writing, and uh, all that sort of stuff. How has God helped you to see fresh insights into the Christmas story? through writing this book.
2: Okay. There's, a couple of, there's so many answers to that, um, and I'll only give you a couple. One is to actually, for me, the Christmas story to come alive again in a, in a way that we tend to sentimentalise it or go, oh, that's nice, that's Christmas over and done with, on, on to the next thing. So that's one thing. The second thing is to see Christians grounded in their faith. Already I've had feedback from people who said, that's really been helpful and helped me in my Christian life. And thirdly, and this is an unexpected one, because so many people, whilst I was writing it, said, what was the purpose of you writing it? And I said, to help Christians understand Christmas in a deeper way. But, unexpectedly, more and more non-Christians have been picking up the book and finding Jesus through it. Hmm. And that is... Been an unexpected bonus for me, that, and I just pray that people will come to know the gift that was given for themselves Great. this Christmas time. Thank
1: you. Blessings on your house, brother, and on your next project. Um, we are having a book stall, a pop-up book stall here over the next few Sundays. Um, so three or four Sundays so to bring you hard-earned cash. I've asked Andrew if he can. I'm sure, Deborah, there's a few of these lying around in your garage. Is that right? Brilliant. Okay, so I say, look, can you get your hands on some for next uh, Sunday? If uh, you're not able to be around, go to Day One. Day One, have got it on, on their website. Or Amazon. Or Amazon, there we go. It's kind of the big style. Um, even Waterstone's in there. That's returning to Epsom, no less. And uh, maybe they're going to have it as well. Um, please get hold of it. Please make use of it. You'll find it very, very helpful. What's it called? <laughs> Andrew, it's, it's called Christmas, ho ho, bar humbug. No, it's called um, Towards the Night Before Christmas. No, Christmas, how the gift was given. Christmas, how the gift was give, given. I've oh, oh, got a copy here. Have a look at it, flick it at the end of the service if that's a help to you. And how much? Would it be? And how much? Eight pounds. On Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> it's buy one, you get two for 16 pounds is the message you need to hear. Let's get to work. Uh, It was 17 years ago, we crossed the, uh, well, on the ferry, we journeyed to Euro Disney. Uh, We were not yet blessed with children, but we found our way to Euro Disney anyway. And in the time that we were there, looking at Mickey Mouse and all that nonsense, there was a perfect storm that experienced in my personhood, because the world can be divided into men and women, Uh, it can also be divided into those who love uh, to go on uh, rides, and those who don't. I'm very much in the second category. I hate going on rides. But there we were in the middle of uh, Euro Disney and we had the fast pass that I saw as a blessing but it became a curse because the perfect storm happened in about 20 minutes of our early married life. It began on uh, Indiana Jones backwards. (laughs) Indiana Jones backwards can be described as a bone-shaking ride. Um, You start to ascend going... uh, where you can see you're going upwards into the sky. And then the contraption that you're on that's been designed by someone that doesn't like people or bones (laughs) staying in their right places turns on uh, through 180 degrees and you start to go backwards. So now we're talking left to right, up to down. Uh, Your stomach is left where you first ate and you're starting to feel a wee bit queasy. Um, So I got to the end of this ride. Um, Joe was cockahoo. I was... Well, I felt I had less blood in my body, less blood in my face than when I first entered the ride. That's where the problems began. Because, because of the power of fast pass, I now had five minutes to get from there to, and I quote, Thunder Mountain. Uh, we made our way 300 yards across, past hundreds of people that did not have fast pass, and I got to Thunder Mountain. Thunder Mountain uh, begins in light and quickly enters darkness. And on the uh, contraption that you're on in pitch black, which is great because it means you can't see where you're going. Uh, You're going around this way and that, up and down. Every fibre in my body was being shaken at that point. And at the end of the ride, there's a few people that have been on it. Um, You cannot guess what happened next. My contents of my dinner stayed inside of me, thankfully. But at the end of both of these rides, when it felt shaken to bits, honestly, like my brain had been rattled as well, that there had been, to quote Jerry D Lewis, thank you Andy Wyatt, a whole lot of shaking has been going on. I was laid down on a grass verge outside Thunder Mountain thinking, I have paid for that. (laughs) It was a very strange experience, but thankfully um, the burger stayed inside of me, not outside of me. I say that for a silly illustration to get to the point of chapter 12, verses 18 and following. There is a whole lot of shaking that is going on. It's a repeated word throughout verses 18 to 29 that is a symbol and as as a sign, biblically, of the judgment of God. It's a serious passage and it's a serious topic. And every week we've been seeing how the early Christians have been shaking. They've been shaking with the ups and downs, not of a roller coaster, but of life. They've been suffering. It's as if they've been in a spiritual darkness. I'm not trying to make light in any way, but there are lots of parallels with the shaking experience of a roller coaster ride, sometimes with what life, and more importantly, with with what God can lead you into when it comes to suffering, when it comes to slander, when it comes to uh, habitual sins that you can't shake off. Sometimes it feels like you're being battered by life, and that's the experience of these early Christians. But at this point of the letter, or at this point of the sermon, should I say, because I think it's more of a sermon than a letter. The writer is drawing together all these thoughts that he's spent 12 chapters explaining, and he's getting to the peak. He's getting to the point. He's getting to his main point and saying, here and here alone, as you fix your eyes on Jesus at the start of chapter 12, here is uh, an existence. Here is a life. Here is a true experience, a true reality that you can know, that if you know this by fixing your eyes on Jesus, there will be shaking, but you will be secure. And the key to getting that is seeing that this, uh, there's two paragraphs here from verses 18 to 25. The first one is 18 to 21, is the shakeable life. The shakable life, the second paragraph is 22 to 25. That's the unshakable life and it really is a compare and contrast from verses 18 to 25. So let's get into it. Point number one, the shakeable life. The shakeable life. Look at uh, sentence 18 and 22 with me, please. 18 and 22. They both start with the same verb, but it's used in a different way. Verse 18, you have not come to. Verse 22, you have come to. There are many... Uh, Greek verbs used for travel and movement and journeying from A to B. The one that's used here is a kind of unique one that has to do with a person on a religious approach to God. And so it's a very symbolic word. You have not come to this, but you have come to God this way, verse 22. All of us have a fundamental posture by which and through which we want to approach God whether it's a God of our own making or the God of the Bible. And often it works this way. We can say, if we are good enough, if we compare ourselves to others, well, I know if I try hard enough as a good parent, I'm better than them. If I uh, fulfil my taxes, if I behave in a certain moralistic way and they don't, then God will be pleased with me. I, I twist his arm. I get some sort of moral credit that I can bargain with him. I've done my best. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than them. That's so often how it can work with our approach to God. But if we're honest, and Dave's talk was so helpful illustrating this, when we get to not looking at the outside of us, but when we look at the inside, we each know that we could do a whole lot better. We have a sham, often that we wear to church on Sunday, don't we? We have a facade, we have a mask that when we let drop, we get very, very afraid that people will see the real person here. And this is what's illustrated in verses 18 to 21. In verse 18 to 21, the shakable life, when people's true self is exposed, when they come into the glory and presence of Almighty God, verses 18 to 21. It's describing this famous Old Testament uh, event where the Israelites came into the presence of God. They came to Mount Sinai. God came down and dwelt amongst his people, dwelt on top of a mountain that they could not approach, they could not touch. And he spoke ten words, ten commandments to say, this is how I want you to live This is how you're to live that respects and honours and worships me and shows the world that you're under new management, that I am God and that you are not. But as they drew near to him, they were exposed. As God came near to his people, they didn't say, wow, yeah, it's God's voice. Did you hear what God said? They said, God, get away from us. Because it's a fearful thing to come into the presence of almighty god they felt the mountain shake as god came close and the writer here in beginning of verse 18 i counted seven negative images that connotes the glory and majesty and awesome presence of god as god draws near here are seven verse 18 you have not come to what they came to number one a mountain that can be touched two burning with fire, three, darkness, four, gloom, five, storm, six, a trumpet blast, seven, a voice that was so overwhelming they couldn't bear it. When God drew close to his people, it was not backslapping. slapping, it was not cuddly, it was not comfortable, there was fear and reverence and awe, and God's people said to God Almighty, don't say another word. Stop. Friends, one of the signs that the God of the Bible turns up into a church and into someone's life, into a community, into a nation, is awe and fear and sobriety and reverence. Casualness leaves us. There's a carefulness in how we speak. There's a solemnity in what we sing. There's a reverence in how we treat God. We take his name carefully. We read his word diligently. We care for our spouses in a unique way. It changes our ethics. And when God drew near to his people, pretense and the masks and the facade, when it falls to the ground, All through the Bible, this is true. Exodus 3, God comes close to Moses and he says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Moses is trembling with fear. Job 42, the end of the book of Job, God reveals himself through all the difficulties that Job has been led into and he says, where are you? God reveals his majesty and power beginning in chapter 40 And what's the response when Job sees the majesty of God? He says, I despise myself. I'm clothed in sackcloth and ashes. Peter, when Peter sees the risen Christ, he says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When Isaiah sees God's, just the edge of his cloak, the the, the edge of the train of his cloak, and he sees something of his majesty, he says, away from me, woe is me, I'm undone because he sees the glory and majesty of God. It's a hold on a shaking going on. There is a a shaking and a shattering and a coming apart of people in the life of the Israelites and Moses and Peter and Isaiah and Job and perhaps you and me as well. We're all in deep denial, aren't we? (coughs) That there is a God at all. We want to suppress that truth. We want to exalt ourselves. But when God comes near to us by his grace, something unique happens. We see his majesty, something of it. We see something of his power, something of his glory. And as we see that, to the degree we see something of the majesty of God, we then see our own weakness and our flawedness and our shatteredness, just like those people have done in the Bible. We see with the microscope our capacity for evil. We see our propensity for selfishness. We see how cowardly we are. And we have no idea until we see the glory of God. Now most people won't have a one-to-one, Moses-esque, Job, Peter-esque experience like Isaiah had of the glory and majesty of almighty God. But friends, even if we don't see God for who he is, the world, non-Christian friends, will shake you as well. Say all your resolve and energy is placed into getting uh, all the credentials you can, but then you go to a a university and you find someone cleverer than you. Say it comes to your sporting prowess, but then you reach the Premier League and you recognise that there are people who can kick a ball far better than you can. Say it's on building a superb nest egg that comes into a huge retirement fund. But when the financial crash happens, because it's your identity, it's not just a matter of you losing a pile of money. You're shattered because you've had something so precious to you exposed. There is an approach to life that is completely and utterly shakable. And when you come into the presence of God... And if not even God, then the world will shake you down as well. Because this world, well in this world, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. So verses 18 to 21. But then very quickly, beginning at verse 22, secondarily. In contrast to the shakeable life where we cannot stand in our own resources, and we cannot stand before a mighty God, beginning in verse 22, we see three signs of the unshakable Life. Get the contrast? Shakable, 18 to 21, the unshakable life, beginning in verse 22. Beginning in verse 22, there is enough evidence to see a complete opposite, a combine, uh, compare and contrast, the writer is saying, because lots of the imagery is replicated to say, that's the old way of living, but here's the way of security and stability and eternal life and an unshakable life. Here are three things, just for summary's sake. Number one, beginning in verse 22. The unshakable life is marked by an unshakable future. The unshakable life is seen in an unshakable future. Verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now I say this under caution. If you wanted to get a black... Sharpie, and take it to your Bible and put a line through the word Bible and write your own title for the Bible on there, you could write a tale of two cities because that would be a pretty good name for the Bible because it is the tale of two cities. It's the tale of the city of man and the city of God. There's the city of man that can be traced right through from the book of Genesis right through to the book of Revelation. And in the city of man is a place of pride and hubris. A place where it's out to make a great name for yourself. Cross-reference Babel for one place. Cross-reference to Babylon. Cross-reference to the end of the Bible in Revelation where there is a city that's opposed to all things that are glorious and good and all things that God wants to achieve. But the city of man is about personal power where you, your number one priority is to make a great name and renown for yourself. But then... Not only is there a city of man, there's the city of God. And beginning again in the book of Genesis and right through to Revelation, you can trace it right the way through, especially it's seen in the book of Isaiah, the city of God that's completely opposite to the city of man. The city of man is not about pride, it's about peace. The city of uh, God is not about my rights, it's about righteousness. It's where God dwells impurity and justice and joy is guaranteed. God is laying a foundation of the divine architect and builder of a new city that merges with a new creation to create the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells, where God's glory is known, where suffering doesn't exist, where tears are no more. Who wants to be there? I do. It's the unshakable future, not Sinai that was shaken. So just imagine... 230 years after Hebrews was written. When reality itself seemed to come crushing down, when the barbarian horde came through in 410 AD and destroyed Rome, there was an early Christian called Augustine who grasped this truth like few people have done throughout the history of the church. When people were thinking civilization is over, the barbarians have come and they've destroyed Rome. That was going to be the eternal city and now it's in rags and ruins. And Augustine said this. Now, wait a minute. Have you forgotten the city of God that starts in Genesis and goes right the way through to Revelation and on into eternity? God is building a city that can never be destroyed by bomb, by fire. It will never be destroyed, it will never be sacked. Remember that? And that's exactly what's happening in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, it will not be shaken. You've come to not Mount Sinai, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come not to the city of man, you've come to the city of the living God. That's eternal, that's safe, that's lasting. It's not temporal, it's eternal. But how can the writer say, verse 22, as he mucked up his tenses, like I so often did in English, how can he say, you have come to it? I think it's like a show home. When the Horton estate was being built there was mud everywhere there's always mud everywhere when the builders come in the bulldozers come in there was absolute destruction but in the corner there is the show home the show home is the plushest place where all the resources and untold resources go into to make the cushions coordinate with the wall i'm working hard here because this is not my strong point The ruggy things on the floor and the plates have that gold kind of edge to it, and the glasses have the gold rim, and the the crockery's there. and All the trappings are there, and guess what? There's laurel kind of leaves and tree thingies as you go into the front of the house. It looks perfect. It's an outcrop of potentiality when the rest is absolute disaster as the JCB goes rumbling by. And they say, if you buy this now and give us the money because we need it to keep the building project going, please give us the money. You can live in a house just like this, but then you get your home and it's not so good. Friends, the church is the show home of the living God. The church shows the power and the potentiality of God to build a heavenly Jerusalem that will be the greatest reality we will ever know. Solid joys, lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. There's a lot of shaking going on. There's a lot of rumbling in this existence that we know. But in eternity, we will be safe. And that's why 22 can say, you've come to it already. Because the church is the little outpost of heaven. The church is where God's people, who have shared in the unmerited grace of God, can gather and encourage one another and say, this is what God can do now. Imagine what God will achieve then. We're safe now. We're eternally secure for that day. It's real joy. It's being part of a community that we know is such a small part now. But we have come to it. But we need to wait until the building project is complete. Until God wraps up human history with a trumpet and says enough. And then the city of God will be an eternal reality with our eyes of faith seeing it. When now we see as we've seen in the book already, through a shadow, through a glass dimly, then we will see it. It's part of unshakable reality. Number one, an unshakable future. We need to speed up. Verse 22, there's an unshakable joy as well. An unshakable future and an unshakable joy. Verse 22, you've not just come to the city of the living God. Let's read on, 22. To thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, Coming into the presence of God is always about coming face to face with angels. Go back to the first book of the Bible, the first few chapters of the Bible. When Adam and Eve rebel against God's loving, kind rule, God banishes them out of the Garden of Eden. What do they see guarding the presence of God? An angel with a flaming sword saying, you are barred from coming into God's presence, God's dwelling. Think of Jacob, uh, Genesis 28. Jacob sees into the reality of heaven. He sees a stairway to heaven. You could write a song about that. And there's angels descending up and down because it's the reality, the heavenly reality, the reality of God. You see the angel guarding God's presence. He saw a stairway to heaven. Think of Isaiah again. Isaiah in the heavenly throne room. What does he see? Cherubim everywhere. <coughs> Because cherubim are associated with God's presence. And what's, what are we being told here? At Mount Sinai, when God descended in glory and power, when God's people were saying, Away from us, when there's this traumatic experience of shattering and a shaking, this huge contrast now to say, somehow God will make it possible for you to come into His presence and there will not be a whole lot of shaking. There will be joy, there will be happiness, there will be delight, there will be intimacy. Not fear, but closeness. This phrase joyful assembly or "festial gathering is another uh, way of putting it. And I see this, this is very important to see this. This means an incredibly wild party. You could translate it in that way. This is an incredibly wild party. Don't think an earthly definition of that. This is true unfettered pure joy of seeing our maker face to face and enjoying him forever in john 17 we get a little window into this in the high priestly prayer of jesus when he's saying about how the godhead has enjoyed one another since before the creation of the world glorifying adoring communing with one another it's a a festial gathering psalm 19 says this is what the whole of creation was built for. You may not be praising God right now, but if you don't the trees will, the mountains will, the oceans do. The uh, the spider who grabs a piece of uh, oxygen and takes it to the bottom of the ocean so that he can uh, you know or she can or they can uh, take air, this is what you're built for and eternity is going to be about that. The unshakable Reality, the unshakable future, the party that will be in heaven, the party of the prodigal son returning and the father just kills the fattened calf and puts the ring on and the clothes on. It's just a sign of the beautiful, wild party that there will be in heaven. Not when one sinner is saved, but when all of God's people are gathered together. It's what you're made for. And nothing else will satisfy you until you see the true joy that only Jesus can give we're told are we not if you lose control you'll never be happy if you lose control you will never be happy but the bible says something completely opposite if you want to know true joy live for god as number one if you want to know true happiness give your life away don't hold on to it give it away pursue something that's worth dying for that's worth living for that's worth giving for as worth sacrificing for, the kingdom of God. It's an unshakable future. Thirdly, it's an unshakable identity. Verse 22 again, unshakable identity as well. Third thing said here you've come to the angels, the city of God, you've come to the angels in joyful assembly, this party. But then it says, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Now, what does that mean? That's a a rich and a difficult metaphor to unpick, so let's do our best. It made me think of Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus Christ empowers his uh, disciples to say, being part of the kingdom of God gives you authority over evil spirits. And they went out into the world and they did some amazing things. When they came back to Jesus, they said something very interesting. They came back in an excited, kind of bubbly way. Jesus, it worked. Jesus, it worked. Even the demons are subject to us. And then, if you remember in Luke 10, Jesus gets very serious. It's it's kind of a rebuke. And he says this. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in heaven. Really tells off his disciples. Why are you amazed? Because you go out in my name, I've got complete authority. What should really amaze you is not the power. Don't get your identity from the power. Get your identity. Get your sense of well-being. Understand who you are because your names are written in the book of life. That's what's being said here in verse 22. If it's not enough to say the future is secure, if it's not enough to say there's going to be a party in heaven and you're going to be part of it, now Jesus is saying, now the writer is saying rather, look, This is your identity. You have an inheritance that is secure. This uh, imagery of the church of the firstborn, that simply means in the Old Testament times in the ancient Near East, it wasn't a matter when a, a father or a mother died of dividing up the inheritance equally. That wasn't what happened. The firstborn got the lot. The firstborn got absolutely everything. And they're saying this, you are members of the firstborn church. You get everything everything that God has intended will come to you and you've got it. Now in part, you'll get it there in full. You get the whole inheritance. Your names are written in heaven. That's past tense. But to be firstborn is to have your inheritance guaranteed now. You're completely accepted by God now. And you'll know it and you'll see it then. If you got this... Just this one verse from verse 22. If I understood this more fully, it would cure you of the wounds that people have caused in your life. Those parents that have hurt you deeply, that you barely knew, here's a father who knows you and says, here is your identity. You're part of my church. I've chosen you. Here are all the blessings. Receive them. All the abuse you've received, or the criticism that you've known, absolutely anything, here's a future that is unshakable. So unshakable future, an unshakable joy, unshakable identity. Rejoice, not that you can do this or that, not that you've got power. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. You're the church of the firstborn. It just means you get everything. Thirdly, finally, quickly, how do you receive that? There's two kingdoms, the uh, shakable kingdom, the unshakable kingdom where we spent most of our time. But how will you receive this unshakable kingdom if you're not already a member of it? Remember I said this whole image of shaking is not about a ride at a theme park. It's about a very serious topic called the judgment of God. God's justice against a world that's turned its back on him. It says this, just Isaiah felt when he saw the glory of God that he was coming apart. Down in verse 27, it describes God as a kind of a divine gold prospector. Remember they used to take a a bowl and just take it into a river somewhere um, in the, the west of America, San Francisco, around there. And they'd start to shake it out and all the dross would disappear. They'd get some clean water in and then there would be weighty things, glorious things, golden nuggets left behind. That's what God is looking for. He's saying this. I will shake the world once again. Looking for things of eternal value, for weighty things. But here's the big struggle we face. We know that if God shakes us in our own strength and resources, there'll be nothing left. We'll be just like Isaiah. So then how do we get these great things, this unshakable life, that we don't deserve, how do we get that? We get it because of the cross. All the Gospel writers say this, but I'll just go to Matthew. When Jesus was on the cross, when he gave up his spirit, Matthew records us these words. He says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen to the similarities from verses 18 to 21 for what happens next. At that moment, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. There was earthquake, darkness, gloom. Rocks are splitting. It's like Mount Sinai happening all over again. Because the world was being shaken. Or shall we say Jesus for the sake of the world was being shaken. God's judgment was poured out on him at the cross. We know these truths so well, but we can become so indifferent to them, don't we? Jesus Christ was getting the shaking that we deserve. The judgment that we deserve, he took in our place. When people say, yeah, but aren't all religions just the same? No, they're not. Because in the gospel, in Christianity, you've got the judge of all the earth who's being judged on our behalf. The God of all the earth who will shake the earth with his voice at Mount Sinai said, I'll go to the cross and I'll be shaken on behalf of the sins of the whole world. I've not come to bring judgment here. I've come to bear judgment here. And because he was shaken on the cross, if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have an unshakable life. Because the curtain, the no entry sign was removed and we can come into God's presence That uh, thing that was fatal can now be something we look forward to. The dwelling place of God. God's glory that would consume us and destroy us. That we would say, if we could, Lord be quiet, please away from us. Now we can't wait to see him because he was shaken on our behalf. Life, eternal life comes through God's grace. And the shaking is there just to consume in our lives those things that need to go away, to consume our flaws. Friends, we don't have to be afraid of the shaking anymore because of Jesus Christ being shaken to pieces for us. And because of that, we can be part of this kingdom, not just a show house, not just the church. We're looking forward to a kingdom that will never be shaken. It's an unshakable future. It's unshakable joy. It's a wild party. And it's an unshakable identity. Let's pray. Father, help us please to grasp these solid joys that we and we alone know. We're so, so tempted to settle down with things that give us temporary joy, but here's something that lasts. We're so tempted to buy things that will give us pleasure, but here's something that's a free gift from Jesus. Father, help us please to come to grips with these things and we thank you so much for not sparing your son so that we can be spared if we are in him. Amen.